Our, uh, our son um, graduated about two months ago, our middle child, from Palm Beach Atlantic University on the other coast. But this story I want to tell you took place at college two years ago. So during the middle of the week, Ethan calls the house, and he said, Dad, I want to tell you about Eugene. I said, okay, who's Eugene? So Eugene's 28, 29 years old, older student, just came to campus. And um, Eugene, he's got quite a story, and he wants to, like, go on tour with me. He wants me to go with him and me go with him and, and maybe even, you know, drop out of school now and start going on the tour. And I said, no, we're not dropping out of school, but let me, let me, let me hear your story. And so he said, well, um, you know, Eugene um, had a lawsuit. He, he got sick, and he, he sued a large pharmaceutical company. And he won a $10 million lawsuit. And he said Eugene was on tour with Casting Crowns. And he, for six months, he toured with Casting Crowns. And he was the speaker. They did the music. He said Eugene knows Tyler Perry. He said he and Tyler Perry have become friends. He's been at his home. He's been at his studio in Atlanta. He said, Dad, he's got a, he's got a contract next year, a 30-minute t- television show with the Family Channel and pending with A&E. And he said, Dad, he even knows Michelle Obama. I said, really? I said, well, does he know the dad? And, well, no, he's busy working on some health care thing, I think. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, he said he, he knows Michelle Obama. And so I, I, said, I said, Ethan... Okay, and, and you, know, you try not to tell your older kids what to think, but you ask questions, you know, you try to coach instead of parent with your older kids. And, and so he said, Dad, what do you think? And I said, well, Ethan, in my world, when something sounds too good to be true, it, it what? That, that's what I told him. And so I said, is there any way that you can do some research? Well, one of his roommates is named Cash, and he's a journalism major. His other roommate is Brandon, and Brandon's a film major. Brandon actually was an intern with us for a summer with video, videos and stuff. So these three guys then go to do some research on Eugene, and they call the pharmaceutical company. And, of course, the pharmaceutical company won't confirm or deny anything, they get a hold of Casting Crowns, and Casting Crowns has never heard of Eugene. They get a hold of A&E and the Family Channel, and they've never heard of Eugene. Every source that Eugene gave them, they don't have a clue who this guy is. And so the three young men confront Eugene, and sure enough, it was all a lie. He made up the entire story, and he left college about three days later and probably went to another university to find two or three other young men to try to sucker them into some kind of a deal of of some kind. Now, you contrast that story to Peter. You contrast that story to Peter, and Peter is now, today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. He's at the end of his life. He's now an older man. And as an older man, he begins to recount how he first met Jesus. He met Jesus on a boat. And Jesus said, from now on, follow me, leave your nets, and you will become a fisher of men. And, and, and at that point, Simon Peter became very passionate about Christianity. Now, he was kind of the clumsiest of all the disciples, wasn't he? He made probably more, more public mistakes. He didn't make the biggest mistake, but he made more, mis- more mistakes than all the other disciples put together. But for the next 30 years... Simon Peter begins to travel, he begins to teach, he begins to 
write scripture and probably plant some churches. And Simon Peter became very, very passionate. And as an old man, his story checks out. As an old man, his references are credible. As an old man, his material is indisputable. Now, I love this story about Peter because as Peter comes to the end of his life, something just pops out at me with I read this story this week. And you know how like you and I do something and we're all excited about it when we first do it? It's like, it's like we buy something or we go someplace and whatever it is, that product kind of overpromises, but it like underproduces. Yeah, and so, so we're all excited about the new product or the new car or the new shoes or the new vacation or the new spouse or whatever it is. We're all excited. And, and, and I did say that, didn't I? And, and, and it kind of it overpromises. I, I did it on purpose. It kind of overpromises, but it like underproduces. And, and, and so we have this thing called regret. Peter doesn't like mellow. One of the reasons why we mellow as we get older is because we don't have the highs and lows. We kind of realize there's a little bit more moderation. Peter doesn't have any moderation. He's been doing this for 30 years. He's pouring on the coal. He's got the foot slammed down on the accelerator. He is more excited about Christ and Christianity than he's ever been in his life. But the second thing that I notice about Peter is no regrets. Absolutely no regrets. Now, how many of us can say we have no regrets? How many of us, as we age, can still decide that we're going to live a life where we really don't have any? Peter has no regrets. He pushed all his chips in the center of the table. He left the nets. He left the business. He left even partly his family for a season. And he was all in. He was all in with Christianity. And I love that story because, you know, you and I, we have regrets. And, and, and our, our greatest regrets have come when we haven't listened to God. And so what Peter's going to say to us today is basically the way to live your life without regrets is number one, is the church, the people of God. Number two, it's the spirit of God. But what he talks about today is about the word of God. And so why are we going to spend five or six weeks on thinking clearly? Because, see, healthy churches have to think clearly. And you and I know when we don't think clearly, look at this little slide. When we don't think clearly, unclear thinking leads to poor decisions. And poor decisions always leads to regret. And so we're going to spend X number of weeks right now trying to help us to think clearly. I mean, let's be honest. You knew you weren't supposed to do it. You you knew you weren't supposed to lie, but you lied, and you sure feel regret. You you knew that he was married. You knew that she was married. You knew you shouldn't have pursued, but but you, 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 you knew that your parents were right. You know your parents gave you good advice, and you ran through the stoplight going 100 miles an hour anyway. There were all kind of warning signs. And so you and I have a lot of regret. We're not speaking to the children this morning. We're speaking to us as adults, middle school, high school, and above. We have regrets. And our greatest regrets, I mean, let's be honest. Your greatest regrets 
and the worst chapter of your life has come about when you knew the right thing to do and you walked away from it and you chose not to do it. And so what Peter's trying to do today is he wants you to live your life without regret. And he knows in order for you to live your life without regret, you have to think clearly. But in order for you to think clearly, you've got to have something outside of yourself, bigger than yourself, that will enable you to be able to be a clear thinker. And so we'll start today with 2 Peter chapter 1. And here's what Peter said. I want to remind you of some stuff. Now keep in mind, he's now old. Keep in mind, he's about to check out. Here's what he says in 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, so I will always remind you of these things. And even though you know them and you are firmly established in the truth that you now have. It's kind of like, you know, when you're about to die, you, you, you circle everybody around you and you tell everybody again what's very valuable to you. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside. What's he saying? I'm going to die really soon. I know my time is coming to an end. Because I know that I will soon put it aside, as the Lord as Christ has made this clear to me. Verse 15. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, again, he knows he's about to go, you will always be able to remember these things. Why? Why does he want you to remember these things? Because he doesn't want you to have regret. And clear thinking avoids regret. So here's what he says, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. He's, he's saying, I'm not Eugene. I don't have a Eugene story for you. I'm not making this up. My references check out. My material is indisputable. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's going, let me tell you, I was there. I was there the night when Jesus came walking on the water. We all thought it was a ghost. And I said, hey, if it's really you, call me to come out. And he says, come to me. And I started walking on water for about 30 seconds. Man, it was the coolest thing that ever happened in my life. Now, I took my eyes off of it. I'm about drowned. He had to save me. But for 30 seconds, dude, I was walking on water. And it was awesome. He said, I was there when my mother-in-law had a high fever and Jesus healed her. There was a woman who had an issue of blood 12 years and she just touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. The little girl was dead. She wasn't asleep. She'd been dead for hours. And Jesus said, little girl, get up. And I saw her get up. He said, I didn't make these stories up. I was there. I walked with Jesus. We didn't make up these stories. When we told you about the Lord Jesus Christ, his power, we were eyewitnesses of his testimony. Look at verse 17. He received honor and glory from God the Father. Now he's getting ready to refer to what's called as the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is listed in both Matthew, Mark, and, let's see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's listed in all three Gospels. So he's now referring to something that happened 30-some years ago when Jesus was glorified, transfigured on a mountain. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Look at verse 18. 
We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven. And we were with him on that sacred mountain. I think this is really cool. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write about it. Peter was there. It's like James and John and I, we were there. We heard the voice of God. We heard God's voice say, this is my boy, and I'm real happy about what's going on right now. Now, this is where the story for me kind of gets interesting, because you're at a family reunion, and you're at a family reunion, and somehow the topic comes around the Bible, and every family reunion's got, you know, the cousin Eddie's. Every family, family reunion's got the crazies. I mean, you got crazies in your family, don't you? Every family's got crazies. If you don't think you've got crazies, that means you're the crazy one. <laughs> we, 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 just, we just want you to know that, okay? So the, the seven of you in the room that don't think you have crazies, that's because they all talk about you. You're the crazy one. So somebody at Starbucks, somebody at work, somebody at a family reunion, and they begin to raise questions about the Bible. And there's about three different categories. Number one, there are people like me, and probably like most of you, that we believe the Bible's real. We believe God wrote it. We believe God made it. We believe the greatest miracle in the Bible is the Bible. So there, there's, there's those of us in category number one. Category number two would be a, a lot of people would like to believe it. We're just not sure how it connects. We, we, we would like to believe it, but we got these problems about the dinosaur, and, and what about the problem of evil, and, and my English college lit professor said, so, so the second category would be we, we struggle. The third category is what I find most interesting. It's the people who are just hard shell, hardcore, you've got to be kidding, you seem intelligent, and I tell them looks can be deceiving, you seem intelligent, how in the world can you believe in the Bible? And so I have these conversations on a regular basis, and I love that. I especially love having the conversations with category number two, because category number two is, is we're trying to figure it out. But category number three, category number three, when I was younger, I used to let category three make me feel like I was the idiot. And I don't, I'm sitting there looking at people now, I'm going, I'm not the idiot. There's more evidence for the scriptures. There's more evidence for the Bible. And so, so now after I get to know somebody really well, okay, I got to clarify that, and I'm somewhere at Target or somewhere, you know, in the community or somewhere at Starbucks, I, I got four or five guys that, that I, I see on a regular basis. They can't believe that I actually teach this as real. They are shell-shocked that I actually think that this is the Word of God. And they'll say, you don't really believe that. And I can't use the word they use, but it starts with an S. The next letter is H, I, and a T. But I won't say that in church. But anyway, they'll say, I can't believe that you, you believe all that. You seem so intelligent. I said, well, you know, again, looks can be deceiving. But, but I'm not the idiot. So here's what I say. Let, let's just cut to the chase. You and I have been friends now for two or three years. Have you ever read it? Have you ever read the Bible? I mean, just be honest with me. Have you ever read it? Well, no, no. I said, you know why you haven't read it? Because you don't want to read it. And the reason that you don't want to read it, it's because you want to do what you want to do the way you want to do it. You don't want to surrender. You don't want to submit. You don't, you're rebellious. Well, yeah, Padre, I am. I am, I am rebellious. And, and, and that's exactly right. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to say to you, don't let somebody make you feel like the village idiot. 
You're not the village idiot. You see, because the guy who was there said this. Look at the next verse, verse 19. He said this. We also have the prophetic message of something completely reliable. Peter's going, my name's not Eugene. I got a reliable story here. And you would do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. Above all, he said, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. No, 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 no. He said, prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When you just think about the Bible for just a minute, and this is what I will say to different people when we have this kind of a conversation. What other piece of literature compares to the Bible? What, what other piece of literature has 40 different authors? What other piece of literature has 40 different authors that was written over 1,500 years? All 40 of those authors compiled this book over 1,500 years. They wrote it from three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's in three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. I mean, are, are you kidding? Do you see the, the, the strength of the evidence? And by the way, there's, there's, like, there's like 12 different occupations who wrote the Bible. And I wanted you to see this. I think this is fascinating. 12 different occupations. Number one, there were fishermen who wrote the Bible. Masters, monarchs, poets, prophets. Scholars, servants, shepherds, soldiers, statesmen, tax collectors, and tent makers. Twelve different occupations wrote the 66 books. And there's at least six different locations. One of them's in exile, but there's six different locations. I want you to see this. They wrote the Bible from a dungeon. Some wrote from a dungeon. Number two, some were from exile. Now, I know exile is not a place, but there were a whole lot of people that were, were in exile. Number three, a hillside. Number four, palace, prison, wilderness. This book is the most phenomenal, fascinating piece of holy literature that has ever been compiled together. Forty authors written over 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, 12 different occupations, at least six different places that it was written from, and you're going to tell me that I'm the village idiot because I don't believe in the scriptures? I, I'm not buying it. I, I don't think so. And so this is a series on clear thinking because your greatest regrets in life, the worst chapter of your life has come when you weren't thinking clearly. And you and I won't think clearly when we try to draw those sources from ourselves. But when we draw something that's supernat from something that's supernatural, we, we will never be the same. So Tuesday night, the older kids, we're all still in town and we're all together. And so Danita's for years has always done like a family night of Valentine's dinner. And we knew we couldn't all do it on Friday night, Valentine's Day. So... We were all in town, and I had two funerals this week, but didn't have anything on, on Tuesday night, so we have a big dinner t together on Tuesday night. And she works hard on this. She has the Valentine's d decor and, you know, the hearts and all that kind of stuff, and it's, it's great. And, and then 
Well, I mean that. It's, it's cool. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy, you know, so it's, it's okay. The food was really good. But, but um, she's into all this. And then uh, we bring out the Bible, and we said, okay, let's, 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 let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And before we were going to read it, we said, let's pick out, you know, one of those things, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, doesn't brag, uh, has no record of wrongs. Let's pick out one of those things and identify each one of us around the table as to what maybe fits for us. And so I think we started with Emily. And we, you know, Emily, love is whatever. And we, we identify with Emily. And, and then we did Ethan. And then we did Erica. And then we did Danita. And I think I was last. And it took them a long time to figure out at least one that I could, you know, qualify for. But they finally, you know, made something up. <laughs> and, and, then, and then Danita said, um, she said, do you guys remember? I taught this to you on vacation. Erica, you were eight. Ethan, you were nine. And Emily, you were three. Do you all remember this? And the older two said, yeah, we remember it. We couldn't have lunch until we said the whole chapter. And I I remember that because the older two, and Danita said, yeah, because the three-year-old memorized the entire chapter and you two were goofing around. So I wasn't going to make you, that that woman, you know, she looks sweet and kind. Don't let that southern smile fool you, okay? (laughs) Sly as a fox. And then Danita said, she said, I'll tell you what, I'll give 20 bucks to any of you who can recite from memory 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And one of them said, well, what if we all do it? They said, I'll give 20 bucks to everybody who can do it. I'm going, what? You're not thinking clearly at all. This is not a good idea. At that moment, all three kids like united. And all of a sudden they looked at each other and they started, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I'm thinking, well, here goes 60 bucks. This is, <laughs> this is the most expensive Valentine home dinner I've ever had in my life. Sure enough, they nailed the whole chapter. They nailed it. She went and got, you know, 60 bucks to hand each one of them with 20. And, you know, of course we bribed them. But anyway, they did it. And, and I thought, you know what? That's so smart. Because when they were kids, she got the word of God in them. And now as young adults, we want the word of God to be from them, to live within the margins of scripture. Quickly, I, I want to give you 10 more reasons why I think the Bible came from God. And I think these are really important and they're in your bulletin. If you're a note taker and you want to take notes on this, uh, I, I want to give you 10 more reasons why we believe that the Bible came from God. Number one, it's amazing unity. How could 40 authors start the Bible the same way and it ends the same way? How, how, how could 40 authors start in a garden and end in a garden? How could they start with a tree of life and end with a tree of life? How could they start with God with man and ended up us in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, no, no gates, no, no light because God himself is... How, how could all that happen? How could 40 people on their own put together this, this thread of amazing unity? Number two... It's just historical accuracy. The Bible's not a history book, but every time it speaks about history, there's been absolute historical accuracy. Number three, it's indestructibility. There have been many, many people who've tried to destroy the scriptures. In AD 303, a Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian 
Diocletian said, he made an edict, it is illegal and we will destroy every copy of the scriptures. And that was his goal in 303 AD. You're not going to destroy the scriptures. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You're not going to destroy the scriptures. Number four, scientific accuracy. The Bible's not a science book. It's not a science book. But whenever it speaks of science, it is always spoken so accurately. Years ago, we thought the earth was flat. And so when they read Isaiah, where it said, he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, everybody goes, ah, there's an error, because everybody knows the earth is flat. And then years later, we realized the earth is not flat. God was right all along. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Number five, the prophetic accuracy, all these different prophecies about Christ, how one man fulfilled all those. It's it's absolutely incredible. Number six, the authentically truthful style. You you know, one of the things that, that makes the Bible credible for me is all these main characters had issues. The Bible doesn't paint these main characters as as gods or as demigods or or as deities. You know know what makes sense to me is you you can't make this up. They're all going to the tomb. And and, and they didn't go to the tomb and go, all right, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, he's going to rise from the dead. They're all freaked out going, what just happened here? Where are the grave clothes? And Peter himself runs to the tomb and he doesn't believe. And the women thought he was the gardener. Remember that story? Amazing. Just amazing. The Bible, David, one of the greatest kings of all times, murders, commits adultery. Moses strikes the rock. Noah gets drunk. It, 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 it paints these guys as, and women as truthful characters. Number seven, the profound theme of Jesus Christ. The theme of Jesus Christ starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's amazing. The whole theme of a Messiah begins in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It begins early in the story. Number eight. I like this one. The wisdom still works. Why should you read the Bible? Because it's got 2,352 verses on money. Why should you read the Bible? Because it tells you about how to work. Why should you read the Bible? It tells you how to be a parent. Why should you read the Bible? It tells you how to have a great marriage. Why should you read the Bible? It tells you how to be a great friend. Why should you read the Bible? It tells you about certain people you need to stay away from and certain people you need to stick to. Man, it still works. And then number nine, it's, it's just like one of a kind of a story. What, 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 what a love story of a God who knew we couldn't save ourselves who knew that we were in trouble? I mean, you talk about alienation. We were alienated and separated from God. And so he sends us Christ, and Christ builds bridges, and Christ turns on lights, and Christ gives us the opportunity to be restored where we don't have the regrets. And then number 10, still, still changes lives. And the word of God today is still changing lives. And he does this all the time. And so why 
Why did maybe four or five weeks ago now did, did our youth pastor, Griffin Gilstrap, we've coined a new phrase. Why did he introduce this 15 minutes with God? Why are we trying to get you to spend 15 minutes with God every single day? Well, I want to tell you a story about Billy Graham and Charles Templeton. Now, we've all heard of Billy Graham, right? Everybody, would you raise your hand? Billy Graham, everybody know, know Billy? Maybe not personally, but you know who he is, right? You're not Eugene, you don't know him personally, but, but you know, all right. Probably most of you have never heard of Charles Templeton. Not the, not the Templeton investment people. This is another guy named Charles Templeton. Anybody know the story of Charles Templeton in this room? What's interesting about Charles Templeton is Charles Templeton was more powerful and prolific. They had a greater following in the 1940s than Billy Graham. They were colleagues. They were, they were partners. Billy Graham's doing the thing here with Charles Templeton. He, he's in Canada. And, and it looked like, you know, the next great evangelist in this country was going to be the influence even of a guy named Charles Templeton. So here we go. Billy Graham here, Charles Templeton there, their buddies, their colleagues. Somewhere along the way, Charles Templeton lost his faith. He lost his faith in the Word of God. He lost his faith in the Spirit of God. And, and you look at how Charles Templeton's life ended versus Billy Graham today. And the story, I read the story of Charles Templeton, he just couldn't make sense of everything. And neither can I, and neither can you. And Charles Templeton couldn't connect all the dots, and neither can I, and neither can you. But he saw a magazine with a woman from Africa holding her dead baby. And all she needed, the article said, the, the caption was, was rain. And he said, if there is a God, then that God could provide rain. There must not be a God. And Charles Templeton couldn't connect all the dots, and neither can you, and ne neither can I. And he died bitter. It was a bitter, miserable ending to his life. And from that point on, about 1947 to 48, the rest of his life until he died was horrible. Contrast that to Billy. He's got Parkinson's disease. He can't walk without a walker. Lost his wife, Ruth, what, 10, 11 years ago? He's been now a widower for 10, 11 years. And yet you still hear Billy Graham talk about the goodness of God, the greatness of God. And Billy Graham's chosen. He, he can't connect all the dots either. I remember watching him years ago on Larry King Live, and he told Larry, I, I can't make sense of everything, but I know that God loves me. I know that God cares for me. And I know that God's word is real and applicable to my life. And so every one of us in this room, we're either going to be a Charles Templeton, can't make sense out of everything, and so because I can't make sense out of everything, I'm not going to pursue anything. Or we're going to choose the Billy Graham route. Can't connect every piece, but I'm going to trust and obey that no prophecy of Scripture ever came about my man's own interpretation. I'm going to trust that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And so this is why 
This is why we really want you to read the Bible. I know preachers say this all the time, but I don't want you to have regrets. I want you to be able to live your life, the rest of your life, without regrets. And I got a front row seat to regret, people. I I got a front row seat to regret. And regrets come when you make poor decisions. And poor decisions come from unclear thinking. And unclear thinking comes when you try to do everything that's right in your own eyes. When that happens, you are set up and you're vulnerable for for a failure. And so we're asking you to, to spend time in the scriptures. We're asking you to spend time every day to read. So I got Danita flowers, I think it was actually on Thursday because I was afraid they'd run out. And so I got her flowers. And then I went back on Friday and got Erica some and got Emily some. And You know, why not? It's just money, right? We're already out 60 bucks. Why not just make it a good hundred, you know? Just just go for it, you know? Break the bank on balance. I'm going to have to come live with you. But anyway, we had a good time. So I'm there in the flower section at Publix, and one of the young mothers, she has three children, she and her husband, but one of the young mothers, she said to me, she's getting flowers to, she's for her uh, family, mother-in-law. And she said, um, I downloaded the Bible. We just baptized her at the last beach baptism. She said, I downloaded the Bible on my phone. And now when I'm at the YMCA and I'm on the elliptical thing, she said, I'm listening to the Bible while I'm exercising. I went, yes, it will change her life and it will change her kids. It will change her family. It will change her, it will change everything in her life. And so I'm asking, I can't can't make you do it. I can lead you to water, but I can't can't make you drink. but, But we do this. I do this. I do this every single day because I I don't want to have any regrets. So as we wrap up this particular sermon and we just start this series today, maybe it's time for you to give your life to Christ. Maybe you've never said, yep, I I need Jesus. I need him to forgive me. I need to be cleansed of my sins. I need Jesus Christ to be my Savior. In just a minute, we're going to have prayer partners down front. And you come down front and you let the prayer partners help you with a prayer that just gets you started. Secondly, we're about to kick up the beach baptisms again. We'll do it like right after Easter. Go to the Connect desk and say, you know what? I've never been baptized. I've never identified with the greatest event in all of history, which is Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. I'm going to do it. But but the main thing today, the third piece today is this. I'm going to start spending 15 minutes with God. I'm going to start reading the scriptures on my phone, in my car, my truck, at home, morning, noon, or night. I, I don't care when you do it. That's up to you. But I'm going to make a commitment, a habit, a new habit, so that I can think clearer. And I'm going to read the scriptures or listen to the scriptures every single day of your life. Why don't you stand with me? When our prayer partners come down front, and again, I, I want to encourage you, step one is to give your life to Jesus. Number two, I, maybe you've never been baptized. Sign up today. We'll baptize you. If the water's cold, Jonathan Adrian will be doing all the baptisms. Thirdly, um, re- read the scriptures. Put, 
put the scriptures in your life. Put the scriptures in your mind. Put the scriptures in your heart. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your words. And Father, you've given us your word. And we want to honor you today. In your great name we pray.